Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. I am sitting here via Zoom with my brother-in-arms, Brandon Stiver, and we have another great conversation for you today. Uh, I'm, I've, I, for one, am looking forward to this. I was able to watch a documentary that we're ta- going to be talking about later, and uh, it's always fun to watch a documentary and then to get to ask questions about it. So, Brandon, how you doing, and, and, and who do we have on? And, I, you know, just I do want to say, like, we are coming close to our 200th episode, and we got something pretty cool in the works for that, too. So, just a little teaser for that. I think this is, what, one? it's 190-something. So, we're getting there. I don't know exactly when it's going to go, but I, when I heard that the other day, I was psyched. So anyway, how are you doing, dude? It's, it's, it's coming up, man. Uh, you know, and I just can't get over this. God is, God is faithful. Uh, again, I was just like following you on Twitter and it's just like, oh, there's a podcast. I wasn't even listening to podcasts in 2016. Think right. Orphan was the OG podcast for me. So the fact that uh, I get to usher in this 200th episode with your baby uh, it's coming up guys and it's going to be cool and, and also a way for some of our listeners to get involved. So, uh, stay tuned for that. But, uh, I'm just today's not- real quick. I never thought I'd be described as anything with OG as the, as the, uh, you know, as the descriptor. So I'm, I'm, I'm just really excited about that right now. That, that, that just made my day. So there that's you go. Awesome. Well, I'm, you know, I'm here to say, hey. uh, yeah. but today's yeah. not the 200th episode. And I think no. if I'm, if I'm counting right, I think we're 194. And uh, today we get to uh, talk with uh, Morgan Weinberg from uh, Little Footprints, Big Steps. And she is in Haiti. Um, She's a Canadian living in Haiti. A really great story that in a lot of ways is analogous with a lot of our stories. And uh, but you know what, Phil, while all of us might have good stories, not all of us get a documentary. You know, that's true. You know, I I, I lived cross-culturally, right? I was a Westerner going and living in the global south. Yep. And uh, I didn't get a documentary, but you hey, know what? I got it. Let's do it. Kickstarter fun. Kickstarter well, now fun I live in, starting right out. Who wants to do it? Who wants no, to no, do it? You I don't live in Tanzania anymore. It's probably going to be a little boring. Uh, That's true. You know, Tacoma is not quite as exciting as, as East Africa. But at the same time, Morgan's a lot cooler than me. So we got, <laughs> uh, we got Morgan Weinberg uh, on the show today. A great practitioner doing uh, really good work uh, in, in southern Haiti. Um, and, and a cool opportunity for our guests to really kind of dig in and learn more about not only about her story, but also what it means to, you know, serve orphan and vulnerable children with excellence and, and even kind of the stickiness of that sometimes. So, uh, we're excited to, to get to talk to Morgan and, and unpack a little bit about, about her story and about this documentary. Morgan. Welcome to the Think Orphan Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. Great. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, awesome. And for folks are out there, you know, if they're listening, you don't get to see that Morgan uh, has a, a, a beautiful a child. I can't really see the full child, so I don't know if it's a girl or a boy. Joining us uh, in the little girl, looks like, yeah. So, um, so... She just to join us. So if you hear some little sounds coming, you know, that's, that's what we got going on. There you go. Right there. <laughs> so, so Morgan, you know, we're going to get into to the, the nitty gritty of kind of Haiti and the, and your story and, and all that background, but can you briefly just share your, uh, with our audience, you know, just your, how you got to be where you are today and, and what little, uh, little footprints, big steps is doing in Haiti. Absolutely. So, uh, I am co-founder and executive director of Little Footprints Big Steps, which is a child protection organization based in southern Haiti, uh, which started in 2011. So we work with children who have been separated uh, from their families, you know, which includes children who might have been living in institutions, but also children who are living in the streets or in a rest of it situation of modern slavery or children who've just been lost or abandoned. Um, And we work to reunite those children with their families alongside the Haitian Child Protection Authorities, and then to uh, reinforce the capacity of their families. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. So basically, you know, the one part you kind of didn't talk about there is you're a Canuck, you know, coming down, 
to Haiti and now you're living in Haiti and you've been there for a long time. So how did that happen? How does, how does a little girl, and I say little girl, you weren't a little girl, you were a young woman, but you know, it sounds better to say little girl, cruise from Canada to Haiti and then end up staying there for what now it's over a decade. I, I was very young. <laughs> I'll give you that. I was actually 18 years old the first time I went to Haiti uh, in 2010. And I'm not just from Canada, I'm from Northern Canada. So pretty oh, much wow. one extreme to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to Haiti in 2010 because I saw in the media footage of the devastation of the 2010 earthquake that happened in January in Haiti. And I was just really moved, you know, to wanting to um, do more than fundraise. I wanted to devote my my time and connect with the Haitian people. Um, But I did intend to go and volunteer for one month (laughs) in 2010. And here I am over a decade later, having lived now full time in Haiti since 2011. Um, So when I went to volunteer in Haiti in 2010, Um, I was introduced within my first week in Haiti to a locally run orphanage. And this orphanage really caught my attention because it was just the worst conditions I'd seen any humans living in. Um, And I felt really moved in the sense of, I didn't feel I could return to Canada and, um, forget what I'd seen, you know, leaving the children in in those conditions. So I ended up um, returning to Haiti again the following year after um, working and raising up some funds with the goal of helping these children. Now, I was still doing this independently at the time. LFBS wasn't founded yet. Um, So I returned to Haiti in 2011, actually on my 19th birthday. And that time, uh, so sorry, I forgot to mention, the first time I went to Haiti was with a missionary organization, but I felt kind of limited. And so when I returned to Haiti in 2011, I actually went independently and showed up at this orphanage as the only foreigner and asked to live there alongside the children, which is what I ended up doing for the next five and a half months. Uh, So I was the only foreigner living in this orphanage alongside the kids which was a huge learning experience (laughs) because when I went in there, my objective was actually to improve the conditions in the orphanage for these children who I thought were orphans. And, um, you know, the orphanage owner was telling me, you know, I found this child on a pile of garbage or social services took me this, brought this child to me. And as I lived in the orphanage and saw firsthand Uh, Very quickly, I realized that it was actually a for-profit orphanage, and the children living there were being exploited for the profit of the orphanage owner. So there were, you know, five or six different NGOs supporting this orphanage, but anything they brought for the kids would be sold and not actually given to the children. Um, I also noticed really quickly that there was abuse happening in the orphanage, definitely physical abuse and emotional abuse, which in the beginning would only happen when I wasn't, you know, not in front of me, Mm -hmm. um, but I could still see the signs. And after a couple of months of me living there, it would actually happen right in front of me, um, which was very awful to witness. Um, But as I lived in the orphanage and started to learn Haitian Creole and was able to communicate with the children and also build enough trust that they would speak with me, I was so shocked to learn that all of these children had families and they had families who loved them and cared about them and actually thought that, you know, being in the orphanage was their child's only shot at a better Mm -hmm. life, at more opportunity. Um, And the orphanage owner actually went and recruited these children from their communities, which in some cases were on the other side of the country, um, you know, up in the eight hours up in the mountains. And, um, you know, the children would just speak of all of the promises that were made to them when they were being recruited to come into the orphanage and how it was just completely the opposite um, once they were actually there. 
So once I realized that, and here I had been using, you know, my personal savings and other money that I'd saved up um, to try and help the children, I realized really quickly that, you know, if I wanted to improve their lives, it would mean getting them out of that orphanage. And so I asked the children, um, if I were to send you to school, you know, anywhere you were in the country, where would you want to be? Because the number one reason they were there was their parents couldn't afford to pay for their schooling. Mm -hmm. And all of them would say that they wanted to live with their families, mm. um, which was really a pivotal moment. And what led to the creation of Little Footprints Big Steps, where now my objective in Haiti was to help those children reconnect with their families. But then there's a reason they were separated from their families. Yeah. So reunification doesn't end when they're at home. Yep. Um, but you know, it became about addressing the root causes of the separation, which in most cases is poverty. And so that's where um, LFBS programs of reinforcing the family unit through income generating opportunities, um, you know, support for education and vocational training, housing support in some cases, and community reinforcement all really came from that. Yeah. No, it's really it's really good. And and you know, what we hear, you know, Morgan, over the last over 10 years now, you know, of you being there, you've kind of gotten a sense, right? You know, as a Westerner, but um, the funny thing is with Haiti, it's actually in the West. So I don't, I don't really know, but this cross-cultural experience, right? Um, and, and you've had this experience, you've, you've operated in different models, you've learned things. So now Haiti, you, you know, you mentioned there that you went in after the 2010 earthquake, right? Which was significant, um, you know, cataclysmic, absolutely, um, in, in, in terms of that history. Um, and at the same time, though, Haiti has also had these larger systemic, you know, issues that in a lot of ways, the, 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 North, the, the rest of North America, namely the U.S., but then also Canada, I assume, um, has kind of fed into some of these challenges, right? Um, and I want to, and we're going to get more into your story, especially as we talk about this documentary. Um, but I do, you know, based on your experience of now being there for a decade, um, in the midst of these ongoing challenges in Haiti, 2021, so the year that we just concluded was was a particularly challenging year in a lot of ways. Um, you guys are, are based in Lakai, right, which is in that southern peninsula, which is near where this earthquake hit. Um, there was the assassination of the president last year. And there's other just ongoing challenges, including um, kidnappings, gang activity, those types of things as well. Um, can you give us just kind of like at least a broad view of what the climate is like in Haiti right now? Yeah, it has been a rough couple of years in Haiti, uh, for sure. And, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting because, as you mentioned, I came to Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. And then in 2021, I just experienced um, living through an earthquake here. And it's, um, it's definitely something else to experience at firsthand. One thing I hadn't understood or anticipated when it came to the earthquake was the prolonged trauma due to all of the aftershocks. You know, still in January, there were multiple aftershocks. And so you imagine the terror and, um, you know, how many feelings that brings up. For everyone who has lost family members, everyone who's afraid to be inside buildings, um, it just is this continuous stress and, and fear. Um, so, the earthquake, which you know happened in August of last year, it still is affecting everyone, especially when it comes to mental health. But also, the rebuilding takes time. Um, and when it comes to insecurity, you know. It, it's so interesting because just yesterday, some of my colleagues here were speaking about the president's assassination and the impact that has on them in terms of feeling secure about their lives. Um, you know, if the pres president was murdered in his home, then how is anyone else safe? And actually just this morning, um, a colleague was talking about how her child is affected by 
the increased insecurity and, you know, gang activity, which I will say, um, we're very grateful that a lot of that um, insecurity and kidnappings are concentrated in, Porto, in and around Port-au-Prince. So it's not quite the same reality um, in Lekai and other area, other more rural areas, but everyone in the country is affected because they're seeing it on the news. They're anxious about, you know, is that gonna spread elsewhere in the country? And there's so much centralization in the country that it does affect, um, you know, things like gas shortages happening or inflation and um, interrupting transportation or different services that are only available in the capital. So um, there definitely is- are um, ways that it's affecting. Yeah. And, and, you know, specifically with your focus working with, you know, at-risk children, focusing on child protection, you know, uh, orphans of vulnerable children as kind of this broad group. I mean, how does this challenging climate uh, particularly affect, you know, orphan vulnerable children, separated kids, those that are in need of protective measures? How does it, how does it affect them in particular? I think that in any situation after a disaster or in times of conflict, children become even more vulnerable and at risk of separation in particular, because you know life becomes more difficult, people are more desperate. Um, oftentimes there's maybe more aid coming into the country. So there's this increased risk of vulnerability and separation. Um, so family preservation efforts, family strengthening efforts become extra important at times like this. And it's also so important for us to consider, you know, in any way that international aid is being facilitated in areas that are experiencing conflict or natural disasters, you know, we have to consider, is this, is the way that we're facilitating this going to help families stay together or encourage them, you know, to encourage separation, which obviously is putting the child at greater risk. And a a good example of that actually occurred um, right after the August 2021 earthquake, where um, we were visiting various communities together with um, Haitian Social Services, IBSR, and there was a woman in Kampeyungen, which is not too far from Lekai, who had actually collected 14 children from her community and she didn't have any resources to look after them. She collected them from their families and had them living in a tent with her so that she could request donations. Um, And so thankfully IBSR, Haitian Social Services caught that right away. And we were able to support these children's families and reunite them right away. But it just shows how, you know, more vulnerable families become and how people see, you know, see that as an opportunity to use the children to request donations and and other support. Yeah, no, that's uh, well stated and something that we're aware of. You know, one of the things that, that we're familiar with in Haiti, we don't get a lot of these kind of landmark studies, but in a lot of ways, uh, Lumos Foundation has actually provided that in to to on a couple different fronts as it comes to the Haitian context. So you know, over the last several years within Haiti, there has been this uh, attention, you know, in regards to orphanages, the need for care reform, you know, including these landmark research and advocacy pieces by Lumos. You know, can you? But but the, even some of those were a few years ago, right? When we talk about corruption in orphanages. There was a report for that when we talk about even faith-based dollars that are going to orphanages in Haiti. Like there is actually this research base, but even those are starting to get a few years behind us. You know, can you just help us understand what care reform uh, looks like in the country right now, you know, in 2022? Yeah, it's really exciting. You know, whenever people ask me, is change really possible in Haiti or what changes have I seen? Having lived there for a decade and working in this domain, I'm so excited because I've seen this shift or movement when it comes to care reform in Haiti. It is, you know, somewhere that I've seen a lot of changes happening compared to in 2011, 2012, 
you know, people really didn't understand when I was taking children, you know, helping take children out of orphanages and reuniting them with their families, both locals in Haiti and, you know, foreign aid workers were really confused. <laughs> and they just viewed orphanages as a positive thing, which was really difficult for me having seen firsthand how damaging it was for the children and how much their parents cared, truly cared about them. Um, so as you mentioned, you know, Lumos has done a lot of work. In 2017 and 18, um, we actually assisted Lumos and IBSR in evaluating all of the orphanages in the south of Haiti. And there was a report after their evaluations. I know they did it in the whole country. And I'm sure you're aware of this, over 749 orphanages were evaluated and only 35 actually met the minimum standards mm. of care and were approved to function legally. So that's over 700 orphanages that are not meeting the minimum standards of care and really shouldn't be functioning in the country. Um, and then in October of 2018, the Haitian government actually said that it's no longer legal to open any more new orphanages in the country. Um, so that's a huge step. I think, you know, obviously a, a lot of awareness needs to be raised about that because a lot of people aren't aware that it's illegal to open new orphanages in the country. But the fact that the government is prioritizing care reform, you know, there's been the development of a foster family system which, you know, together with social services, we have actually placed children in foster families and seen them thrive and seen it be incredible and a wonderful solution where they can still grow up in families, um, in a family environment. And then I've also seen, you know, aside from the government prioritizing care reform in Haiti, I've also seen a big shift amongst a lot of NGOs and even people who were running orphanages, you know, American organizations who have been running orphanages, actually approaching organizations like Little Footprints Big Steps and asking about the reunification process and, you know, interested in changing their programs. There are actually several orphanages who have actually done this where they've reunited the children in their care with their families and are looking at offering different programs. Um, it's actually been so prominent that um, four other women running other organizations that work in care reform and I have come together to form a coalition. I know uh, you know about this, Brandon, the Haiti Family Care Network, which has just recently been formed. Uh, later this year, we'll have our, our website released. But all of us had been getting so many questions about care reform, about, you know, transitioning from orphanages to family-based care, about child protection in general in Haiti. Uh, so we have decided to form this coalition to, you know, have collective impact and provide resources basically to anyone working with children and families in Haiti, because it's become such a prominent uh, shift, which is so exciting. No, I, I love it. I think it's I, in that coalition, we were able to meet with you guys at CAFO and just appreciate that, you know, focus uh, that you guys uh, are, are, are moving towards. So that, so that's that's fantastic and, and good to hear. We'll, we, and depending on when uh, that website is out, we will try to link it in the show notes so that people can connect with you guys and, and the others that are part of that coalition. Yeah, and folks, anything we're talking on that note, anything we're talking about in this episode, you can go check it out at the uh, in the show notes at thinkorphan.com, and uh, you can get the links. We'll be talking about the documentary here in a little bit. You can get the link to that. You can get the link to uh, you know the organization. You can link to the other information that we've that we've talked about. Anything that has a link, we'll have it there. So we um, might make it as user user friendly as possible for you. All right. So Morgan, you know, we talked earlier about your, you know, your story and how you got to be where you are, how you got to be sitting in Haiti with this beautiful little girl on your lap. And, and so we know that over the last, uh, you know, decade or so you've, you've learned a ton, right? You know, so we always hear this, this story and it, it would be, you know, they could, they'll be able to watch the documentary to be able to hear some of this too. You could probably go on for hours and hours and hours and probably teach an entire semester on the things you've learned over the last decade, but 
you know, one of the things, one of the reasons we do this show is really to help others understand how we can do things better, right? So rather than just saying, you know, we need to shut everything down that's ever has anything negative about it, we want to say, no, there's a both and solution that we can come up with in things, right? And so what are, how can we do things with excellence knowing that there will still be some people that say, I want to go start an orphanage. So how can we talk to them and say, here's what we would recommend. Here's how we would recommend getting involved. There will be other 18 year olds saying, I want to go to Haiti and I want to serve. And typically with the language we hear is something along the lines of, I want to go love on some kids or I want to go serve the less fortunate or I want to do. And I try to, when I teach a course on this, try to say, get that out of your, you know, language that you use for various reasons. So I, I see you nodding. And so I'm assuming things like that, what are things that you may have said, you may have thought subconsciously or actually said out loud when you were 18 and this dreamer going to Haiti versus now where you've experienced it. And, you know, and you, what advice would you give to somebody who is in your shoes back, um, or who is in your shoes, uh, is experiencing what you experienced back when you were 18. Yes. Uh, you mentioned the documentary, Not About Me, which it's uh, really unique in that there's footage of me from the time I was 19 years old mm -hmm. <laughs> up until now. And to be quite honest, it was really difficult for me to see the earlier footage of myself because, you know, even the way I spoke and thought, I just feel like, you know, who is this girl? <laughs> I feel like I was so naive and, and it's embarrassing for me to watch now. But um, it's, you know, hopefully powerful to have kind of show my whole personal transformation because mm -hmm. um, it's hard to be humble enough to want to always do better. Um, Obviously, if someone wants to volunteer or wants to, you know, be involved in humanitarian aid and international development, we want to help other people. And that's so important. And we need to preserve that. But it's so critical that we look at the way that we do it and make sure that it's not about us. <laughs> Hence the name, not about me for the film. Um, but this actually takes so much more self-awareness than we realize. Um, because, you know, for example, in the beginning, I was completely driven by my attachment to these children. I had such maternal feelings for them. Mm -hmm. um, I would call them my children. I would refer to the children that I was working with in the orphanage as my children. And... I was just so emotional about getting them safe, getting them out of that orphanage as quickly as possible. Um, and, you know, over the years, I, I've come to realize if we ask about what's your intention in helping them, make sure it's not about you. And um, so I was very much driven by my attachment to the children and doing what I thought they needed or what I thought was best for them. And so, of course I had good intentions, but I didn't fully understand the situation. Um, so I think, you know, especially if you're working in a cross-cultural context like that, you have to go into it with the perspective of going to learn and going to ask, how you can support um, those who you want to help, as opposed to going into it kind of, as you mentioned, with the mentality of going in to fix or to save or mm -hmm. to, you know, save the world and change the country. You have to go in, especially in the beginning, trying to learn. And I think it's this whole concept of when I first went to Haiti, I... I never realized how, how different I was, you know, because I, you know, I just didn't see myself as differently as the Haitians saw me at the time. And of course, when it comes to, you know, human rights and 
and all of that, you know, we see equality, but in a context like that, we do have to recognize that each of us has our own worldview and our own perspective based on so many different factors. And I can't go into that situation and understand what the children in this orphanage are going through or what their parents are going through or what the Haitian authorities are experiencing unless I go in and, and listen to them. Um, so it's really about recognizing that those people who you want to help, whether it's the children or their families or child protection authorities in Haiti, they're the experts. And you need to follow their lead, basically, um, yeah. which is, again, requires even more self-awareness than we realize, because I can take myself as an example. I don't think I'm a very authoritative person. <laughs> I've become a lot stronger when I, I speak up for things that I care about. But um, especially, you know, in my younger years, I was very shy and um, I would be surprised if, you know, I just felt that if, if, for example, any of my Haitian colleagues or the children that I was working with or the families we were supporting, it would never occur to me that they would not feel comfortable sharing with me what their needs are or if I was doing something that could be done differently. But it took me many years to realize because I'm their employer or I'm the one providing aid or I'm perceived this way in their culture, there are certain things they will not say to me. Or if I'm the one to suggest something instead of asking a question, they'll just go with whatever I say. So mm -hmm. there are those type of um, situations that we have to be aware of and really look at how can we approach this in a way that is not me imposing my worldview and my ideal solutions onto right. them when they're the ones who are going to be affected by my intervention. Absolutely. And, and I remember you saying something in the documentary that I absolutely loved because I have, I don't, never said it in that same way. And I've never lived abroad like you have. And I know Brandon has as well, but towards the end of the documentary and you said something along the lines of people have said, you know, well, you struggle with you know, being a white savior. And you said, Hey, I don't describe you as Brown. Why are you describing me as white? Something along those lines. But it was this idea of we are, you know, all made in God's image. This is how I, I heard it. We are all Imago Dei. And so we are built to live in relationship with each other. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I want to hear if, if I want to just kind of see if, if, if this is the way you see it as well, as I try to explain it to people when I'm either teaching a class or talking to people about cross-cultural learning is it's not just going in to learn so that you can just wait it out until you can tell them what to do. It's truly a, I truly want to understand you as I want to understand my neighbor in my neighborhood, as I want to understand my friends and get to know them deeper and deeper and deeper. And then in the context of relationship, we can understand how we can help each other and serve each other as brothers and sisters. Is that what it kind of in that one statement, I don't want to say it's, it, it is more than that too, but is that along the lines of what you meant there and what you are, what you are saying in, in the, in what you've learned? Yeah. You know, one of my colleagues actually made this comment that made me really proud <laughs> um, because he had had a lot of experience in other NGOs and he's a new staff member. And um, we were in a meeting where a, a different person asked him about his experience working with LFBS. And he said, you know, working with LFBS is really different because you can actually give input and create instead of just being told what to do. And um, that made me feel like we're on the right track because, you know, the way I've been describing it recently is um, if, if we're the ones with the resources, we, that doesn't necessarily mean we should be the ones making decisions because our lives aren't the ones who are going to be affected by whatever support is provided. So 
it's not about us inviting these people to the decision-making table. It's their table and we're the guests. Mm. So we should come in and ask how we can support them in their ambitions and their solutions to their lives. Yeah. So I recently had a conversation and, and, uh, this is, this is bonus coverage. This was not in your outline. So I, you know, made it, you may, you know, may catch a little off guard, but I have a feeling you'll have some thoughts on it, but I talked with somebody about it and they were asking about child sponsorship. And, um, what I, one of the things I said to him was I, I said, I, I would, I would struggle to find a time and a place that child sponsorship would be appropriate in the context of an orphanage. Um, what, what do you think about that? I, as you mentioned, over the last decade, I've learned many lessons mm -hmm. and I think it's important to constantly look at how can we do things better. Um, in the context of any aid organization, you know, for example, LFBS does family reunification. In the beginning, we did do child sponsorship, tying a donor mm -hmm. to a child which is something we definitely avoid doing now mm -hmm. for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I think that especially in the context of an orphanage, I don't think that would be appropriate. Yeah. Um, Can you share a couple of those reasons that you just alluded to there? Just like, why did you make that shift? Um, in some cases, well, when it comes to supporting a child, for example, who's been, reunited with his or her family. Well, okay, in any, in any case, if a child knows, for example, this donor is paying for my education, they don't have the motivation to study and pass. They don't need to do well in school. They have someone paying their schooling every year um, and that donor is tied to them. And then when it comes to children being reunited in, into you know, a family unit, in a lot of different ways, this is goes beyond just um, the sponsorship setup, but even in terms of what level of your support, support your organization provides and the way that it's facilitated, I learned the, again, the hard way that it's so important to include the parent in um, all of the support you're providing because you can so easily undermine the family dynamic that you're trying to rebuild. And what we found was that when we had a child, you know, being sponsored and we were just kind of looking at it at the from the perspective of supporting this child, as opposed to reinforcing this family unit, which in turn will have this child's mm -hmm. life improve. Um, when you're just looking at supporting this one child and they have kind of a guaranteed support tied to that child, it, it can undermine the family dynamic in so many ways. The child might not respect the parent's authority because they don't see the parent as a provider. They see the organization or the sponsor as a provider. The parents might not fully step up and take responsibility because they don't feel like they can. They're not you know, being reinforced or empowered to be able to look after their kids. They're just having someone step in and and fill in their spot almost instead of helping them step up and then you know any child that's being reintegrated into their family there's usually other children you know siblings in the family so if you have this one child singled out for sponsorship how does that make the other ch children feel how does that affect the family dynamic i think there's just so much to consider um, so we really transitioned to looking at supporting a family unit mm -hmm. and not having this, um, you know, their aid tied to a specific donor in the sponsorship setup. Then, you know, what if the donor stops? What if this family isn't the most vulnerable? Mm -hmm. A lot of different issues can come yeah. from that. No, absolutely. That was, uh, that was it doesn't surprise me any of that stuff that you just said. So yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. And uh, la the last question is just uh, something, you know, you, you now have this documentary and, and some people would say, ironically, it's called not about me, but clearly it's about you. And so, you know, that's something that if you watch it, when you watch it, hopefully you'll watch it folks. Cause it was, it's a very, very well done. 
And like, um, like Morgan said, it, it was really, uh, powerful. It was powerful. It did come across very powerful to have when you were 18 and, you know, fresh off the plane coming into Haiti to today. Um, no, but you saw that you saw that maturation process. You saw the, the, you were wrestling with these things. You saw the scene in a hospital where you're saying, I put down mother on the sheet, you know, and, and you see these things that, you know, and I loved how it kept going back and forth too. It was extremely well done. So whoever, you know, produced the, the, the movie and directed it, kudos to them. They did a phenomenal job. So, um, but what did that look like? Cause you know, some people be, you know, I, and I've heard this traveling the world and interviewing people about different things and, and how does something like this come to be? Cause there's a lot of people doing a lot of things, but you know, what did that look like as far as turning your story into the, into the movie? Why did you, you know, feel it was something that, you know, when they asked you about it, that you thought, yeah, this is a way that I want to share my story. What was the motivation behind that? Mm -hmm. It was quite a process. <laughs> mm -hmm. It wasn't really my intention to have a documentary made about me or my story. But um, the reason why there's so much footage over a decade is very early on, I think in 2011 or 12, there were some young videographers who, uh, who I had met who basically asked if they could film my journey and with the intention of making a documentary about my story. I said, sure. Although <laughs> looking back, I think, what were you thinking? <laughs> but um, so they started capturing a lot of the footage early on. And then they kind of felt that um, it was too big of a story to put into a documentary. Mm. So they passed on all the footage that they'd captured to a second videographer, Ryan Sheets. And he, for several years, came to Haiti. He came to Miami when um, I accompanied a child for surgery there. And he continued capturing footage. This was, I think, around 2014, 15. And so he inherited other footage and captured more footage. But then he also felt like it's kind of a, a big story to put into a film. Mm -hmm. And so my mom, Karen, actually ended up inheriting all of the footage from all of those videographers. And then she approached Kelly Milner, who is a Yukon uh, film producer. She is the producer of Not About Me. Um, and Kelly decided to take it on, but she in the beginning thought she would be doing like the profile of this Yukoner who went to Haiti to start an organization. And when I first met with Kelly and, you know, we were talking about the documentary, I basically told her, I don't want it to just be my story. I don't want it mm -hmm. just to be about me. For me, that would really be limiting it. Um, yeah. And I wanted this to be more. I wanted it to, first of all, to raise awareness about these issues that I've dedicated mm -hmm. my life to, um, being, you know, the orphanage system and family reunification, but also the way that we help and to get people thinking about that. Um, and so, you know, that being my first objective of, of the film to raise awareness on those issues. And then by sharing my personal journey and growth, my hope is that, um, you know, by sharing my mistakes and, and journey that people will feel more comfortable questioning their own perspective and looking at the way that they do things and be inspired to think that, you know, if you identify a way that you can do something better, it doesn't mean that you should feel bad or criticize yourself. It's an opportunity yeah. to improve and have a greater impact. Um, so hoping that it will inspire people to, you know, even do things better. And Kelly ended up taking on this project and, you know, she did interviews with Lumos and mm -hmm. UNICEF representatives. And um, she did a really good job of kind of my request of making it about something bigger not just making it be my story. Yeah. And, um, you know, Kelly speaks about having Ellickson, who is uh, a staff member of LFBS, but 
he is also a care lever. He was one of the youth in the orphanage that I lived in in 2011. Um, and he ended up actually doing a speech at the One Young World yeah. conference in, yep. in, with Lumos. Um, she describes him as the hero of the film. So yeah. I appreciated that. Yeah, it was, I totally agree with uh, what you said that, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't about you. It was clearly about something much bigger and how God used you in, uh, in some pretty cool ways to be able to bring light to something. And, you know, really for such a time as this, right. He put you there for a reason. And I, and I love that. That's why people say, should I go overseas? I said, if you feel really led by God, yes, but be open to knowing what God's going to do. Don't have your plan and your agenda. Don't say, what am I going to do? Do say, who am I going to be and go and be a child of God who wants to be God's vessel and, and God will blow you away as, as he has you. I can tell that with you. So, um, yeah. And I'm proud, proud of you. I would just add that, you know, in a lot of ways, Morgan, your story mirrors a lot of young people. I know that I've shared this before on the podcast, but, um, you know, my own story, I, I, I was in very, very similar kind of situation. Uh, I went to, uh, Tanzania in 2008 was there for two weeks, said, sign me up for more, went back the next year for two months, got offered a position at an orphanage. I was 23 and I was like, man, I'm walking into my destiny. How incredible, you know? And I had almost, you could like almost map on like how your mentality was with mine. I remember specifically being in language school in, two, in 2010. So I had done two short-term uh, trips January 2010, I moved there. I don't go to the orphanage. I go straight to language school for three weeks. And I remember sitting down with, um, with uh, this Italian guy, Stefano. I still remember. He was a nice guy. Uh, and he was there doing, I think he was doing like uh, reproductive health things, like, you know, passing out condoms and whatnot. <laughs> I, but he was asking me, um, you know, how do you, how do you see yourself? Because I was the education director you know, for the orphanage. He said, do you see yourself primarily as like an educator or as a father? And without hesitation, I was just like, I see myself as a father. I was 23. Some of these kids were like 15, 16 years old. Mm -hmm. I had no history with them, but it's just like, that was, that was the mentality, right? Because I, in a lot of ways, misappropriated, you know, as a man of faith, um, we have people that listen to this podcast that are Christians. This is a Christian podcast. We also have people that don't, uh, but just are interested in OVC. And, uh, you know, as a man of faith, I was thinking like, I'm going to be a father to the fatherless, you know, and there's a lot of value in that when we do recognize that there are kids outside of parental care. But to say that this, you know, 23 year old guy or this 19 year old girl uh, is just going to walk into an orphanage full of kids that in all reality, aren't even really orphans. They're just separated from their families and are going through other, you know, risk factors and vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, it's, it, I, I was, I was moved. One, after I watched the documentary, I thought, man, I missed Tanzania because <laughs> now I live in Washington state, which is great, but, uh, but not quite the same. Uh, but also just, it was encouraging because when people get the opportunity, as you've been able to do, Morgan, uh, to live cross-culturally, you learn a lot about yourself. And, and I think that um, that experience is, um, that there's nothing quite like it, it and it's really integral. So uh, my, my commendations to you and to Kelly and to the whole team that put this documentary together, um, you know, when this podcast releases, the, podca the, uh, the movie itself will be available um, for people to check out. So for watching the film, it is available worldwide um, starting in April, which is when this podcast will be out. So we will share it in the, in the show notes. But for those that are just listening, it's on Vimeo. So vimeo.com front slash on demand front slash not about me. So um, there are also other ways um, where you guys are really gauging the impact around this. So there is also um, a website for the film itself. So that's notaboutmefilm.com. And uh, people can really get right into the impact itself. So if you go on notaboutmefilm.com, you go front slash impact overview, you can actually see um, some, of the, uh, some, of, some of the impact that's, that's happening. You guys have done a great job with distribution, especially among 
um, secondary uh, schools and and colleges in in Canada and now getting down into uh, the U.S. as well. And uh, this is this is a story that, as you said, uh, Morgan, I wholeheartedly agree. It's it's bigger. It's bigger than just what you were doing. Um, like I said, I'm encouraged because uh, while there's no documentary, uh, there was also uh, they, we could almost maybe we should just we need to contact Kelly. I don't have all the vintage footage that you do, but maybe we could just do not about Brandon because it's is honestly very similar. But anyways, no, that would be too vain uh, for me. But at any rate, this is uh, just a it. remarkable uh, documentary. Um, I encourage all of our listeners to check it out and, and share it with others. Um, and again, it's on Vimeo and we will share it in the show notes. So go to thinkorphan.com uh, if you just want to get that direct link. So uh, and if you want to do the Kickstarter campaign, folks, for Brandon's uh, yes. documentary, let's let's get going. Let's so. do it. <laughs> Donate yeah. to onemillionhome.com. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brandon. I didn't even mention the impact campaign, really. This is what really excited me um, about it being bigger than just a film, is the film producers and I worked on discussion guides for classrooms. Like you said, you know, and this is what the film producers said as well, a lot of young people you know, students about to graduate or wanting to volunteer abroad can probably relate, especially to my earlier self, as hard as it is for me to see that footage, you know, that's what people can probably relate to. So we developed these discussion guides, both for classroom screenings and community screenings, you know, to help lead discussion related to the film and um, have people, you know, basically engage in more informed generosity and yes try and help people yes donate yes volunteer but make sure you're doing so in an informed way so that you're helping and not unintentionally harming amen all right we are all about that so uh, again it's not about me film.com go check out their website or go to thinkorphan.com and we will have a lot of those uh, links directly so uh, Morgan, before we get you out of here, we do have a couple questions that we ask all of our guests that come on to Think Orphan. Uh, we want to uh, spread the word as far as good resources and good people that are that are doing work and, and influencing you know those people that are on our show. So, uh, first question: What have you read, watched, or listened to? And it can't be your own documentary. What have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children? as well as their families with excellence? Um, I definitely think that, you know, Lumos has released some reports recently that are pretty powerful in terms of looking at numbers, not just about Haiti, but globally. Um, recent, I, their recent report um, actually links children's institutions and human trafficking, exploring the, the links between the both of them which is something that hits really close to home for me because I did actually witness um, child trafficking. Um, the orphanage that I lived in in 2011, I was actually offered children for $800 a piece as a 19 year old. And later on, of course, met those children's parents who never agreed to actually give them up forever. Um, so that, that piece, um, it's, it's actually the report is called cycles of exploitation. And I just think it's powerful because, you know, when we talk about informed generosity, resources like that help you understand, you know, how unintentionally as volunteers or donors, we sometimes contribute to cycles of exploitation like that. And being aware of it is the first step to being able to change it and make sure that we're not supporting that. Absolutely. No, that's so good. And and I'll never forget, I had a conversation a couple years ago. It's one of the things that we do at One Million Home is church engagement. I remember talking with a pastor in Colorado, and she was sharing with me how they found out that their, um, that their church had been supporting an orphanage in Haiti that had been, uh, you know, trafficking children. And, you know, without going into too much detail, it was just kind of like, oh, my goodness, this is a real thing. Um, and it's something that we have to be aware of. So we will link that report from Lumos in the show notes as well. So uh, final question, uh, Morgan, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? It's, it's very hard to choose one person. I would say, honestly, the parents 
that I've worked with in general, um, the parents of children who have been reunited and seeing how much they truly care about their children. You know, there's one parent that comes to mind. Um, she had two daughters in this orphanage that I lived in in 2011. And she definitely is impoverished. It's a very vulnerable family. But the children, after several months of being reunited with their mother, were so much healthier than when they were in the orphanage where they had been so badly mistreated. And, you know, just seeing how much she cared for them and how much better off they were living with the family um, is really inspiring. And especially now that I'm a mother myself, imagining, you know, how desperate those parents must have been to give up their children in the first place, how hard that separation must have been, how hard it must have been for them when they realized, you know, how mistreated the children were. I've seen parents cry when they come to understand what it was like for their children being in the orphanage. Um, it's, it's really powerful. So I think all this also ties into my personal journey of, you know, going from wanting to be these children, the mother figure for these children, and somewhere along the line realizing these children have parents, and my role is actually to help connect them with their parents. It's not to be their parent. And by doing that, I'm going to be able to help a lot more children than if I tried to be the, the mother figure, which, you know, it left a little bit of um, a space in my own life at one point. And that's where this whole piece of it not being about me and it being about the children, you know, don't make your decisions based on your own personal intentions and, and emotions. And, um, you know, now that I have my own child and can empathize with those parents and can't imagine being separated from my own daughter, um, it just really makes me view care reform in a whole different light. Oh, that's a good answer. What do you think, Phil? That's a good answer. We're all about that. Yeah, I, I think so. I think <laughs> it was it was good. It, it, I approve. Again, oh man, so so much good stuff in here, Morgan. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Uh, we just uh, hope and pray all the best for the good work that you guys are doing in Haiti, and and also, uh, you know, we'll be we'll be sharing and advocating about this uh, about this really well done documentary. Uh, not about you. It's not about you, Morgan. I know that you're aware, but the documentary is not about you. Uh, it is about uh, these kids. It is about the need for change. And uh, thank you for being such a such a willing advocate uh, in that regard. So, and and thank you for being on the show today. Thank you guys for having me. Well, that was a that was a great uh, conversation with Morgan. I know I was encouraged as somebody that is a peer of hers, has a similar timeline. I mean, I know I was kind of geeking out a little bit th there towards the <laughs> end, but uh, just uh, such a remarkable uh, story and uh, such humility as well uh, that Morgan conveys. Uh, you know, that is a big part of the maturation process that you actually see in the documentary. So was just encouraged by her, encouraged by her learning posture, yep. encouraged by um, that she stayed engaged, right? She didn't just blow out and, and say, you know, I'm done with Haiti. She actually found better ways to serve the community. So a lot there to be encouraged about. Uh, Phil, what did you think, man? What kind of stuck out to you? Yeah, I agree. And I, I think we both kind of shared a lot of our thoughts during the interview, you know, and just... I think we both have, and I never lived in Honduras, but working there and, and understanding and knowing the assumptions that we go into this work with and, you know, being able to, you know, I've had the, the privilege of being able to travel the world and see different places and study them and, and learn, and, you know, talk about learning. Like, that, I mean, that was, that was it. That was the only reason I was going places was just to learn. And, and it, I had that benefit, I think, because I was in that posture naturally. So I think it's, to do what you guys did is, is, is hard, man. I mean, as I talk about it, it's why the, it's important for us at this level to be able to, to see things and, and help people understand. And, and it's also important to hear people on the ground doing stuff in the minutiae to have the forest and the trees view. It's gotta be the both and that we talk about. And I love that, that that's one of the reasons I really love the documentary is because it has the weeds conversation in it. 
and it, and it, and it takes her in the midst of this one orphanage where she's seeing the, the negative side of it in this, and it's firsthand. It's not some abstract theoretical thing that we usually hear in our conversations. And we usually talk about is the studying or, you know, we hear about all these different orphanages that are doing all these different things. But in this, in this instance, it's, there's one orphanage and it's one woman who's abusing the children. You know, I mean, obviously the workers were at some level too, but, and then her and her experience, and then it, it takes it out and it goes to the forest and it has the UN conversation. It has Lumos and the director. It has the, as she talked about the conference. Um, and, and I love that juxtaposition of them. And I love the juxtaposition of her in 2011 and her in 2018. And, and now we got her in 2022, you know, to be able to, to even see how she's grown since that was made and, and what's happened. And that's the thing is this is, it's not like earthquake happens in 2010 and okay, now Haiti just needs to recover. No, there's another one. And then there's other issues and there's assassination. There's all these things that are going on and it's ripe for these, these unfortunate fraudulent things to come in. And so, but as we talked about there, what I love is it's not to say, okay, scrap it. It's to say, Hey, how can we do it better? Yeah. And that's what I hope if nothing else that happens out of this podcast, that's what I hope people come away with in all of these interviews is, is look, just cause something has bad components doesn't mean we scrap it. It means we do it better. And what does that look like? And you know, I, I, I always use the internet as an example, right? The internet has a lot of bad right? And people use it for specifically for bad, but it also has a lot of good that can come out of it. Everything has its shadow. And so that's what I love about that. And, you know, I mean, I could go on and on about it. I really enjoyed a lot of times, uh, you know, I, the dirty little secret. Sometimes I watch these uh, documentaries and it's kind of hard to get through because it, it just drags on. But this one, I, I found myself really just wanting to see what's next and, you know, kind of didn't want it to end because I, I saw, um, I just saw so much to learn from and a good subject lesson for people who maybe have never experienced this stuff and are wondering why do people have an issue with orphanages? Why do people have an issue with, you know, why, why is it just, why not just, you know, why are you trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so on and so forth. And so um, I think people that have experienced it like Morgan firsthand are the biggest advocates against them because of what they've seen. Now, are there some orphanages that we need for short term and for these other things and for, you know, some countries who sure. are closed to foster care and all these other things are not closed, but the government won't, doesn't allow it. Yes, but there's also an understanding that, look, in Haiti, where 90% or so are living family members, you know, the, the 10% of those kids, how can we care for them that aren't, you know, having living family members? That's a different conversation than trying to get all these kids and so on. So yeah, that was, I mean, yeah, yeah. so many different things. Sorry. I didn't give you no, one little good. thing to, to talk about, but there you go. No, that was so good, man. And, and you look, when we talk about Haiti, we've talked about Haiti before on the podcast and I would mm -hmm. just encourage people, you know, if anything stuck out to you with Morgan's uh, conversation, you know, go back to some of these other people that we've talked with, you know, Amanda Cox, Spencer Reeves, mm -hmm. Troy Livesay, um, cause there's a lot in that context and it'd actually be interesting to kind of like compare like Troy's yeah. conversation with Morgan's now, because yep. some of those things are actually the same still, yep. you know? Um, and maybe we're not seeing the progress that we want to. And at the same time, you know, she was even saying, look, the climate is changing towards family-based care, mm -hmm. you know? And, and again, it's not, as you were alluding to, it's not that we're saying like, there should be no residential care. Residential care has a place on the continuum of care. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we have uh, over-reliance on it. That's right. And that when it's used, it's not therapeutic. It's mm -hmm. too often it's long-term, right? So, so, it, so it's not just like, oh, we just need to close down all the orphanages. It's that residential care needs to do better, and most of them are not really needed, right? Right. So, yep. um, it, and in terms of what would be better services for those kids? It would be reunification, family strengthening, and those other things that we discussed. So, yeah, uh, great and one other conversation. Thing on that yeah, note go is, ahead. Is just that idea of too often we go from specific to general as well, mm -hmm. and so that's a fallacy for those of you who are logic fans. Um, and so to say, oh, in Haiti, thirty-five of the seven hundred and ninety orphanages were were good, and that that's it. 
So therefore, it's the same in my country. I would say make sure that you are, you know, comparing apples to apples and that you are actually seeing the context that you're in and not just apply these same exact things there, but take the framework and the principles from it to say, what does that look like in my community, in my country? And really, this is contextual. It's why, you know, the book In Pursuit is, is a framework, not a how-to manual, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I think, you know, I'm sure Morgan would be saying the same thing if, if we asked her that. So that was just, that was it. That's good, man. Well, along those fronts, we're talking Haiti, we're talking development space. You got a recommendation for us today, Phil? Anything yeah. stick out to you coming out of this conversation or other? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I think we'll bring it home with this, but you know, you talked about some other episodes. You, you didn't mention Kent Anon. That was another one that was Haiti sure. specific, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some others. I'm sure we're forgetting some others too. But, um, you know, the one recommendation I have is, is actually uh, the movie Poverty Inc. and the series Poverty Cure which uh, Michael Miller, who we had a two-part episode, and I think it was uh, maybe somewhere in the 40s um, of these episodes, so a while back, but still two of my favorite episodes and probably one of, them, you know, one of my favorite episodes I've ever, I mean, interviews I've ever done. I loved my conversation with Michael. Um, and the, that, that uh, movie, Poverty, Inc., actually, as I was watching this, I had a lot, uh, the documentary, Not About Me, I, was, I had a lot of... Uh, you know, flashbacks to Poverty, Inc. And I actually have it in my class. I, I give extra credit to them to watch it um, as part of the poverty alleviation. They listen to Michael's interviews. Um, that's how much I think of them um, as far as the idea of the, what I love about them is, is they talk about the multifaceted approach to poverty alleviation. And in the same way, we really need to have a multifaceted approach to caring for the orphan and vulnerable. And, and what does that look like? And to, to make sure that we're not just saying there's one thing that's going to solve all our problems. That's not the way it works. So yeah. that's, that's, uh, that's the recommendation I have, which I think goes hand in hand with uh, the Not About Me documentary and the interview we just had here with Morgan. Another great documentary for sure. Uh, will go very well in tandem with Not About Me. So please, yeah. uh, friends, check these out. We're not giving you any books. I was tempted. I was tempted. Yeah. Now I know. I'm sure but you were. We're going to take it easy. Systems theory book Watch. or something that you had that you wanted. I was to thinking talk about. travesty in Haiti by Timothy <laughs> Schwartz. Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. he was on Poverty Inc. All right. And now I just kind of did it. You just so, did it. You uh, did it. it. You wanted to. You did it. Haiti by Timothy. Kent Schwartz. wrote some books. Kent Anon wrote some books on it too. If you go to his episode and look on the show notes there, you got some great books there too. But with all this, folks, we've gone a little long today, but I think it was worth it. Um, and uh, just remember that you know, all that we're doing here, we, we hope that you're using all of it, all the podcasts we're doing, the different documentaries and books that we're talking about. Couldn't possibly, I mean, I don't think you could possibly read all these books in five years if we were to, you know, put them all alongside. There are so many great resources out there. We're trying to point you to some of them and uh, documentary, these two documentaries, you could sit down for three hours and learn a ton about these things. So check them out. And, you know, most importantly, take everything that you're learning here and you're using it to help you to understand how you can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.